Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. We are very excited to welcome Jack King to the show today. Jack currently serves as the CIO for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. He provides vision and leadership to help develop and manage both the application, data, and service portfolios to enable the AAOS vision to be the trusted leader in advancing muscular skeletal health. Prior to AAOS, Jack served as the Chief Technology Officer of Broward Health and the Chief Technology Officer for the state of Illinois. He received his BS in Business and Organizational Management from Trinity Christian College and his MBA from Olivet Nazarene University. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thank you. Jack, if you don't mind, uh, kick us off by sharing with our listeners a little about yourself, your role as CIO at AAOS. Sure. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate it. And Shelly, I'm Jack King. Delighted to be with you here today on the show. I currently serve as a CIO for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. We're here in Rosemont, Illinois, and we also have an office in Washington, D.C. My background has been all about technology. I like technology, but I love people. And as I think we're going to get into today, innovation is really all about people, right? It's people applying technology and leading to outcomes. But I've had some tremendous opportunities. Started off my career in financial services and professional services, Moved into healthcare as an orphan, if you will, from the uh, Arthur Anderson days. I spent a good chunk of my career at Arthur Anderson. When they uh, ceased to exist, I went over and started practicing IT in healthcare at at Northwestern Memorial downtown. So that was really uh, an affinity that grew with me over time. And I had a couple of interludes back and forth with the retail world, which came in handy later on back here again with healthcare as the personalization and consumer-driven focus occurred here uh, within healthcare. So it's been a good back and forth and a good mix uh, of career. And I even took a little bit of time out in between and was asked to serve uh, in Governor Rauner's administration as a CTO and then as the interim CIO uh, as we handed over the organization to the new governor. It's an amazing and extensive background. It's very, you've got a wide breadth and wide depth of, of many industries. I think your experience with the, the state government is probably one of the more unique. Uh, what is the... Uh, if you'd said, you mentioned people and technology, mm-hmm. what is the most important lesson you've learned uh, being part of you know, the C-suite of many of those organizations? Nothing happens until you connect with people's minds and hearts. And even when you think you have, you better communicate again and again and again and make sure that everyone's on board. You know, change is easy for some of us. It's really challenging for the rest of us. But connecting with people is where the magic really happens. And you cannot communicate enough. And uh, you have to have an open door. You have to make people feel safe to be able to be part of the process so they feel like this is something that they're participating in versus something that's being done to them. Because I think that's a prominent mindset that you see. And remarkably, I think it's just human nature because I've seen it across the wide range of industries that I've served as as a servant leader in IT a big part of what you're being asked to do is to drive change. And a big part of that change causes discomfort for folks, right? So you want to be able to realize you have to meet people where they are. You still have to achieve the results 
but you have to take care of the relationships in order to get there. So in the end, you know, relationships and results both matter, but you rarely have one without the other and you need to make sure they're sustainable. Very interesting. I fundamentally agree with the relationships and the results. And I think sometimes it's hard that once you start having results, that it doesn't become the focus. Is that something that you've witnessed? Is that something you, you a mistake you made in the past where you focus more on the results and kind of, I want to use the word disabuse, but I guess maybe I do disabuse the relationships. I think we, you know, many of us have grown up in a 13 week culture for better or for worse. Right. And at the end of the day, results do matter and you want to achieve them, but you want to do it in such a way that it's respectful to all the parties involved. Right. And you make sure that you're getting across the finish line. There are times when in order to get the results, you have to move forward aggressively, or you have to really make sure that you're pressing forward. And those are the the artful pieces of this where you're trying to get folks to come along with you versus pulling people along from that standpoint. So it really is about persuasion. It's about convincing people. But when you have hard and fast deadlines or you have goals, things that you have to meet within a given time frame, I find that if you go and meet people and explain to them the sense of urgency, you can at least try to meet them where they're at, get them to buy into that sense of urgency. The majority of the time, most people will, and they genuinely want to get things done. The more time you spend with them to explain the why, I'm a big fan of you know Simon Sinek and starting with why. If you start with that why and you connect with them, the majority of them want to be part of something successful, but many times no one takes the time up front to really enroll them in that. Makes sense. Shelly, do you have a question? I'm just curious, what's been one of your toughest moments for you? You talked about the head and the heart, and when have you kind of inherited a team and maybe it took you a lot longer than you anticipated to get that trust or to get that buy-in? Yeah, that's a good question. It's I think I've had a couple of moments in my career. I'd have to say one that that really sticks with me was uh, we started off in January of 2002 with uh, about $12 billion organization with 85,000 people across the globe and ended up in October of 2002 with a couple hundred of us and a million square feet of office space, right? In uh, downtown Chicago in the suburbs. And we made it down to a group of individuals who were responsible for leading a project to collect all of the information within the organization. So this was a very large multinational organization, which you could probably guess, I had mentioned the name previously, but we were responsible for collecting all of the data that was on the assets. So we actually collected more data than was in the Library of Congress and keeping a team motivated that knew that the impending outcome was going to be ultimately losing our jobs and our careers that many of us had worked for years and years on was probably one of the toughest assignments that I've ever had. In the end, you know, the organization treated us as best they could and uh, we were able to move on to new opportunities being in technology, uh, you know, it does have its advantages. And I would say that was one of the times that was probably one of the most difficult, but also one of the most rewarding when I look back over time, having that faith, building that network and helping one another, you realized early on in your career, which although it was tough, it was really a blessing to be able to recognize how important it is to help other people and to be open to receiving help. It's a very interesting story when you think about like in the context of today, right? I think we all can see that there's some rough roads ahead. What's what you, you mentioned turning the a negative into a positive, right? So even in bad times, there are opportunities. What are some of the opportunities that you see coming up in the next five, six months or within the next year? 
Yeah, some of the, you know, kind of bring this back into what we're doing at, here at AOS to uh, impact our member journey. We're trying to do some innovative new things around launching a mobile application, for one. So I think having the opportunity to continue to move forward with our digital efforts, meeting our members where they're at today, and really trying to simplify. Uh, we have 39,000 members, primarily in North America, but some of them are international and around the world. And they interact with us in different ways. And as you're both aware, creating a digital front door, one size doesn't fit all, right? We have some members who want to automate as much as we can. And we're trying to do that through this mobile app to be able to communicate better, to be able to create a seamless experience where with fewer clicks and more automation, we're able to either anticipate their needs or make it easier for them to you know, chat with a colleague, renew their membership, keep track of their continuing medical education components, different things along those lines. So we're working toward figuring out how to make that platform and experience better for everyone, while at the same time realizing that you know some folks still would rather have a high-touch experience, right? So we have the opportunity for traditional customer service and people to reach us via those channels as well. How do you balance those? Because I know you're very customer-focused, right? Mm -hmm. Value proposition, adding value. How do you balance those challenges sometimes between what the business needs and what your people need. Which one of your secrets on how to handle that situation? Yeah, I, I mean, I think in the end, my business that I'm in is very member-focused and member-driven, right? We're a member-driven organization. So improving that member experience also means you have to recognize that it's not the same for all members, right? Members are at different points in their journey. We have people that are beginning that journey as residents that go through a five-year residency. We have folks who are fellows for 25, 30 years. We have folks who are emeritus, right, who may uh, practice or who no longer practice are part-time. So where people are on their journey has a lot to do with how we serve them, right, and what their needs are because it changes across that. But to your point around efficiencies, I think we want to offer as many options as we can that are cost-effective. And over time, I think you see that expectations grow. I'm sure, you know, Pat, we've talked about our own kids. My kids would rather talk to no one and only touch this piece of glass <laughs> <of> the world, <laughs> and and, uh, and just magically have things happen. I think that there's natural adoption and curves that happen over time. So being able to do the balance between um, through through attrition or through normal demand management, being able to lead people on that path, meet them where they're at. But frankly, once people see that you can set something for an auto renewal, for instance, or you can take the the work out of doing something that used to require you to step aside, make a phone call, or you know send an email, or wait for a response. We live in a in a culture that's pretty you know instant feedback. So continuing to create those doors just creates a natural opportunity for people to move over to them. And if we can take out the high cost components and you know use those to fund innovation, I think it just continues to move in that direction. And people come to it over time. That once they realize how easy it is, they they tend to gravitate toward it. You mentioned earlier, you know, there's never enough communication between you and your employees. Is that kind of the same philosophy that you take with your customers as well? Yeah, it is. I, I take it very seriously with our employees. As a matter of fact, I have a daily huddle and I think it's probably one of the most important meetings of the day. We try to keep it at no more than 15 minutes, but it really gives us a sense of a few things. Some of the folks who participate in that morning huddle are part of our member services and they take care of the members. So we can get a feel for the type of calls that are coming in, any planned, unplanned outages or things that are going on for the day, service level agreements, whether or not we're hitting them or not. We use ticket managing systems, right? So we can tell how we're doing with regards to responses and resolutions, both for internal staff servicing people's IT needs at the academy, 
as well as external members, you know, in terms of how their experience has been uh, from a typical call center metric or people were filling out contact forms or emails, et cetera. So I would say when you ground your staff in those metrics in such a way that they understand why we're here and how we're measuring success and what we're doing, they don't view it as something punitive. They actually lean into it and treat it as an opportunity to come up with new ways to do things or really to recognize one another, which is a really positive way to do it. Whether or not it's kudos or great surveys, it's just a great forum. And I think if you start with your staff that way, they're going to treat your members that way. And it creates a good cycle from that standpoint. And I'm just curious, because I know you have a lot of fun at work, and I'm curious, you know, what are some of those things that you and your team do that get people really energized and, you know, passionate about being there? Well, I think number one thing is don't take ourselves too seriously, right? What the nature of the the work that we do is important. And obviously our members are performing incredible deeds for other people, but we like to have fun. And that can be as simple as creating a culture, which I think we do a good job of at the Academy of take me out to the ball game culture. We'll call it that. We took everyone out to an offsite meeting this past week. We've done barbecues. We've done some onsite things now that we're back in a hybrid environment. So creating a culture where we can laugh at ourselves a little bit from time to time and make sure that the important things are getting done, but kind of have fun on the journey, right? Do cool stuff and have fun while we do it is kind of the unofficial motto. And from time to time, obviously, the seriousness of making sure that we get things done on time and on budget, et cetera, are very important, but we want people to enjoy the journey. Awesome. I know you, you mentioned the, the mobile app is a key strategic point. Yeah. What is your number two focus for innovation right now? for this year? It's a bit of a tie in in my mind. I think that for me, it's a component of the mobile app that's coming through there. And it's really member chat and interaction. And uh, maybe think about it this way. So we'll call it a enhanced communication strategy. In today's world, we are not unlike many organizations, we email members quite a bit, right? So in thinking about who our members are, the concept of presence, who am I? How do I want to be communicated to? To what degree am I able to customize that? One of the pieces of feedback you'll get is some people are fine with emails, right? They work out of their email. They really enjoy it. I think others were looking forward to changing the medium of communication off of the public channels. There are things like Ortho Twitter and different handles that are out there that our members communicate back and forth. But the opportunity to use chat functions or alert functions within an application that's in our members' pocket, whether it's member to member or ourselves maybe pushing a reminder, something critical out to our members directly and having that pop up. So the whole concept of being more present with them and riding along in their pocket is something important to us. So I'd have to say it's probably a byproduct of the app itself, which is hopefully going to enable new ways of communicating with one another that I think our members will really find fascinating and useful. What do you think is going to be the biggest barrier to making that successful? The biggest opportunity, let me flip it around on you. The biggest opportunity I think that's there, Patrick, is the mind share, making sure people understand the, the what's in it for me, what's in it for us. So these are busy professionals. They're highly skilled. They're working many, many hours serving their patients and their communities. So we have a couple of key events that occur throughout the year. We have a very large annual meeting. It, it, it may be second only to HIMSS, but it's one of the larger medical meetings uh, in the country. It's happening in March of 2023 in Las Vegas is our next meeting. So it's taking opportunities like that to get in front of others and create awareness and to maybe have some champions and success stories. So I think like anything else, you can have some really unique tools, you can have really unique technology, 
But if you don't have it in the hands of a champion that can tell a really good story and we're not giving it the opportunity to highlight those pieces, it can end up you know, atrophying or not being used completely. So I think the, the biggest piece there is sort of mindshare and being able to make sure that we have the right support, which we do. We have you know a fantastic communications committee that we're working with and governance committee. So people are very excited about this. But as you launch things and get off the ground, I think when you say, what are the biggest opportunities? How do we tell the stories right away of the good news that's occurring here? And how do you measure those wins? That's great. I use the term distribution, right? When it comes to that of like the build it, they will come strategies pretty well performing from my experience. I think what you don't want to have happen, right, is uh, get some incredible download metrics and then very little use, right? Or things along those lines. So I think we, we really are trying to be thoughtful about how we engage with our membership. I do believe that we'll have traction with certain segments of our members more so than others. It's the early adopters, right? It's the people that get excited about the use of technology and they can see the promise of that. So making sure that we're connecting with them right out of the gate, making sure we're highlighting those stories is the key for me. That's great. So what is the hottest thing in your industry right now? I have to say the thing that I'm most excited about right now is the concept of extended reality with both uh, virtual reality and augmented reality. If you look at what's happening for someone like the Academy, the Academy is good size organization of 250 staff. We have 39,000 members. We're helping our membership to stay on top of the best and the brightest ideas that are going on in the industry, right? You obviously have manufacturers and others that come from within industry, but we provide good, unbiased, objective you know, commentary and support through the thought leaders of the various subspecialties and disciplines across orthopedics. So we have a unique spot where we're able to see things emerging. We're able to take a look at them independently, right? Because we want to be autonomous and be able to offer opinions on these things that are unbiased. But when you look and you see the promise of what's coming, whether it's uh, disruptive technology, what I tend to think of, of most of these technologies, particularly virtual reality, as additive. Uh, we have an incredible organization called the Orthopedic Learning Center, and it's available here on the first floor in Rosemont. And it serves primarily orthopedic needs, but it served a wide array of other medical organizations. It's an incredible asset. It's right here by O'Hare and just a great opportunity that's right here in town. But we bring people in quite often to work in cadaveric labs, to go through different trainings and simulations. We have an incredible lab where people can get their hands on. But if you think about augmented reality, virtual reality, in, in terms of learning, we'll talk more about virtual reality. You can simulate things, right, uh, through HoloLens or through different goggles, things that you might wear, right? Oculus is the word I was looking for. But when you look at Oculus and what's happening with Meta, the idea that I can create a virtual learning environment, a lab, somewhere where people can go through simulations, they can mentally prepare themselves, similar to what a golfer does setting up for their golf swing, right, and practicing. When you go through and you can make your mind comfortable about the preparation for a surgery, what's going to be on a tray, how I'm going to approach something, what I'm going to do, the preparation work on the front end of that in a virtual environment. By the time they come in and put their hands on skin and bone, it's amazing to see how far along people can get in a virtual world and then apply that to be ready to put their hands on things in the real world. So I don't think that one's going to replace the other. I see tremendous augmentation opportunity. And as content continues to get developed, I think the Academy is going to have an incredible opportunity to play a role in helping evaluate those different types of programs and make sure that it meets the specs and needs of our members to make sure that we're going to be able to help others deliver the best orthopedic outcome. That's awesome. 
I see the what you're saying. What you're, I know it's not exactly the same, but uh, I've gotten into Microsoft Flight Simulator using an Oculus, which, again, the Oculus is a great entry tool, but even the potential so obvious of, like, sitting in an actual... Like, you look around, you can see everything that's... So I, I'm going to start taking flying lessons. Hopefully my wife doesn't listen to this uh, this <laughs> summer. And so I asked uh, my friend who does teaching i'm like so what what plane am i going to be learning and he he told me and so i'm able to download that version of the plane i bought it for like 13 dollars, and now i've flown it from gary to lansing half a dozen times already where it's like uh i know where the parking brake is i know where right the throttle all that stuff so it is it's very interesting even though it's not to the level of tactic tactical or tactile right like i can't actually feel it but you can see it, and I, I've got hotkeys and whatnot. But just the idea, the comfort level, like, yeah, once we get off the ground, I'm doing this, then I'm doing this, then I'm doing this. And it's, it's almost rote at that point of, like, and it's uh, the accuracy on the, on the landing strips is pretty high. So it's like, hey, are you taking off of 28 left, you know, 13, whatever. And so it's really, it, it's amazing to think uh, how much we can accelerate learning yeah. through these paradigms. Well, it's even more interesting if you look at the concept that you were just talking about, we referred to as haptics, right? So the fact that I could have a virtual instrument in my hands through paddles or handhelds that you might have, for instance, in the Oculus world, and that I could be making a cut with a saw, I could be putting in a screw, I could be doing things and I could physically be feeling the resistance or the shake and what's yeah. going on. So the lifelike tactile feeling like you were just talking about, that haptic feedback that happens incredibly important, right? Because you're trying to do extremely precision maneuvers here, whether they're replacing a knee or a hip, or they're working on an elbow, shoulder, rotator cuff, neuro and spine, especially, right? So the opportunity to really be able to get that feedback and practice in near real time is incredible. The other thing that people don't think about when you're in a, a skills lab or you're doing one-on-one -on -one or a group setting you can only look over one shoulder at a time, right? If I'm looking mm -hmm. over a professor's shoulder or a surgeon's shoulder, you you might be able to pack because you're taller than me, but the other people wouldn't be able to see, right? Because my head's physically in the way. What's really interesting in a lot of the virtual reality labs that I've been a part of is that everybody's looking from the same vantage point, right? So we can all stand right there. You can get a perfect view of what's going on because everybody's sharing the same kind of digital footprint and able to see that going on at once. So there's a lot going on in that preparation and confidence building, to your point, Patrick. And I think the other part of that is it allows for a greater degree of confidence. And when people walk into a room, they're not thinking about those repetitive steps as much as they are thinking about some of the most important parts, right, of their procedure. So, you know, I think that the promise of technology is very high there to, to do great things and to lend itself. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the other really cool part about augmented reality that's going on right now, or you know, when you look at it, extended reality, the idea that physicians are today in some of the spine procedures, uh, surgeons are able to wear goggles or in a hood that allow them to be able to see 3D rendering of the patient. So you have the ability to do very exact screw placement. These things are are laid out in such a way that it allows for a high degree of accuracy, much more so. And the fact that when you're setting a screw or you're doing a procedure, you're able to see in, in 3D by either looking up on the screen on the wall or looking at what's in front of your face, how far through you are, how far you have remaining from a distance perspective to the end of something, right? Where you wouldn't normally have that depth perception 
wouldn't be able to pinpoint that accuracy. So there we're seeing this sort of in the augmented reality world, we're seeing that applied in procedures, right, on a case-by-case basis. But you can see where the future is going because the combination of virtual reality to prep people for it and augmented reality during a procedure, the marrying up of these things is coming very quickly. And I think it it has an opportunity to really play out well for folks like the Academy and the Learning Center to continue to help everyone in that space. That's amazing. That is, well, uh, keep us up to date on that. And if we get to come over and play, uh, let me know. Yeah, you know what? It would be fun to do uh, an open house over here. And we have had a couple of the manufacturers that make this type of equipment talk about doing some of these things. That might actually be an interesting innovators outing for some of our, uh, our table. Yeah, yeah. And if you guys want to swing by the house to try out the uh, flight simulator, I'm, I'm always game. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, Jack, I really appreciate you taking your time to come on the episode here today. Sounds like some really cool and amazing things going on over the AOS. Keep us up to date. Love to hear more about how things are progressing. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Thank you very much, Shelly and Patrick, for having me. It was a lot of fun and uh, enjoyed it very much. Awesome. We also wanted to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone uh, taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.